this is black guy, white guy talking. I'm a black guy. I'm Elwin. I'm a white guy. I'm Zach. And we became friends by talking, talking about race and race relations. This episode was recorded on August 13th, 2020. We have here with us our distinguished guest, journalist and commentator David A. Love. He writes investigative stories and op-eds on a variety of issues, including politics, social justice, human rights, race, criminal justice, and inequality. He is a writer for CNN, Atlanta Black Star, Al Jazeera, and NBC News. His work has also appeared in The Nation, The Guardian, and The Washington Post, among other publications. And he's appeared as a commentator on CNN, MSNBC, ABC News Radio, BBC, and elsewhere. David, welcome. Hello. It is a pleasure to be with you. Thank you for joining us. Thanks, David. Thank you. Uh, One of the things we'd like to talk about is policing, especially with regard to your article, Too Little Has Changed About American Policing in the Last Few Decades. It's time for something different. I'd like it if if you could talk a little about the first police forces in America, the slave patrols you mentioned in your article. Yes, yes. Well, you know, once again, thanks a lot for having me on to talk about this important issue. Mm. You know, with Everything that's going on these days, particularly with police brutality, I think it's it is a really a, a great time, perfect time to to talk about the history of law enforcement in mm-hmm. this country. One that I think people don't really understand. I mean, as far as particularly when it comes to to uh, the black community, our first experience with law enforcement was on the plantation. Mm. with the slave patrols. And, you know, these were folks, basically white men, members of the community who were deputized. Mm. Most white men had to serve on these slave patrols. And their role was essentially to monitor the plantation, monitor the comings and goings of folks, making sure that black people didn't try to rise up, stage an insurrection making sure that nobody tried to run away if they happened to find slaves walking around, Mm -hmm. had to make sure they had their their papers, you know, their pass or what have you. And more importantly, these patrols, they had the power of life and death over black people, over slaves. And Mm -hmm. they got that power through the society that wanted to uphold the institution of slavery by any means necessary. So they could shoot and kill slaves and wouldn't have to pay any price for that because they had laws. They had these slave codes that governed the lives of white people vis-a-vis black people. Mm. So... You know, they had specific laws saying that a black man would receive death for allegations of raping a white woman mm-hmm. or not just raping, but not even raping, but just for us, you know, hitting or right. something of that matter. Of course, there were no 
consequences if white men raped or assaulted black women. Mm -hmm. And that was, <laughs> that was part of the course. Right. And, um, and, and so many other things that white people were allowed to do to black people. Um, and, you know, people will say, oh, well, you know, that was a long time ago. That was, you know, hundreds of years ago. Mm -hmm. It wasn't that long ago when you think right. about it. But, but, but more importantly, it set up the foundation right. for what we're seeing now. Right. And, and, and if I may, I just want to tell you a relatively short please, <laughs> story. Please, please go right ahead. <laughs> about my own family. This was a story that was passed along through my family, and it deals with my great-great-grandfather, mm -hmm. Henry Whaley. So this was during the Civil War, Charleston, South Carolina, mm -hmm. James Island, where my family's been since about 1700. But in any case, middle of the Civil War, and a group of Black folks on the plantation decide they are self-liberating. So they flee the plantation. My great-great-grandfather, he was tied on his mother's back. His father was also there, and they all ran. And the slave patrol was in the background. They, they heard the slave patrol following them. Mm -hmm. And they were in a bit of a quandary because the baby, my great, great grandfather, wouldn't stop crying. Mm -hmm. And they knew that if he kept making noise, they were going to get okay. caught. And if they were going to get caught, well, we know how that would end. Right. So they're trying to decide what to do. And his mother decided that if he can't stop crying, she'll have to kill him. Oh, my God. And then kill herself. Mm -hmm. But what she does is she feeds him, she breastfeeds him, and he stops crying. Mm. Slave patrollers and catch them, and they make it to freedom. I say all that to say that, you know, this history of police and black people mm -hmm. runs deep. Mm. And my great-great-grandfather, he, he died in 1930. Okay. So people want to think that it's ancient history, right. but it really isn't right. that long ago when you think about mm -hmm. it so um yeah yeah that, that is a <laughs> story way to blow me away with that just yeah. Right up <laughs> yeah i'm really just blown away i'm honestly i had some questions about your origin like you know where your family's from and where you're from mm -hmm. now i know where your family's from and you've answered a couple of questions very clearly but i want to start off with you though like are you from philadelphia where is it south carolina no actually i'm from new york you're from new york okay originally yes so you know my parents were from the south my mother was from Charleston, but lived in New York most of her life. Okay. My father was from uh, Augusta, Georgia. And yeah, so I, I was born and raised in New York. And I've been living in Philly for 20 years okay. now. Came here for law school and basically stayed. So I guess, I don't know, I guess at this point, it, it sort of makes me a from here at yeah, this point. Yeah. But, 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 but I did start off in, in New York. Yeah. Okay. New York is a, is, is a bit of a different place from, from Philly. Um, it, it is, uh, yeah, it yeah, is. but some similarities, but, but but a lot of differences. I think my, my introduction to police violence and police brutality started in New York because I was uh, an activist there. Yeah, I wanted to ask you a little bit about that, just what that was like, you know, being a human rights activist in New York in the late 1990s. And when you were there, you also uh, organized the first national conference on police brutality and misconduct. Isn't that right? 
Yes, that's right. And you know, it's really something that was 1997 mm. when we had that conference and you know, Jesse Jackson was there and uh, Reverend Sharpton and people from around the country, but it set the stage. This was at the height of the Rudy Giuliani administration in New York, Mayor Giuliani. The police were just running wild. And every time he turned around, there was another case of typically a black man, Latino man, or a teen who was beaten, choked to death, shot. Mm-hmm. Um, in some cases, uh, like in one case, a gentleman named Abner Louima, he was actually he sodomized, uh, sodomized yeah. with a plunger mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. in a police station. I remember that. It was really going crazy back mm-hmm. then. And, you know, we, we, we brought um, mm-hmm. activists together. We brought lawyers. We brought progressive black police officers together and we came up with solutions and all sorts of things. We also, um, that year also had, uh, hearings, uh, congressional black caucus came to New York to hold hearings where people gave testimony all day on their experiences. And you know what I find Mm. very interesting, but actually not surprising is that the problems that we faced back then in New York and across the country were really not so different from what we're seeing today. And I guess I should also say that, mm-hmm. you know, from what I know about the 60s when Malcolm X and the Black Panthers mm-hmm. and, and other folks were dealing with this issue mm-hmm. is that things haven't changed a whole lot in terms of the dynamics. And I think part of that is because because we haven't really gotten to terms with the origins and those those slave patrols, mm-hmm. which I should also mention mm-hmm. were the, you know, when you hear about the Second Amendment and the militias, those slave patrols mm-hmm. were those militias that we that we always hear about. So, yeah, I've seen, you know, over the past two decades, over two decades I've seen these dynamics with policing and racism and racial violence, and it won't go away like racism won't go away. But I'm also feeling positive, relatively positive these days, because it seems like Mm. now, particularly with social media and these videos, these things going so viral, people's consciousness Mm -hmm. has been raised. And I'm hopeful that we can really see some some change. But I think what's missing is exactly what you are providing right now. I think in today's society is we're missing context. We're missing historical context. And I think that you've beautifully put it in a way that, you know, I think that for me, I have no connection to what you've just explained as far as my knowledge of it. You know, I'm grateful that, you know, you're able to shed some light and very vividly, too, on the, the history of police and bringing it forward to New York. And this is something I want to ask you in in that time period. If I'm not mistaken, New York was ran heavily by the mob. Right. There was a lot of crime by way of the the mafia, Italian mafia. Right. In New York in, the, in like in the 80s, 70s, 80s, that time period. Yeah. Yeah. There were there were a lot of crackdowns on organized crime back then. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, I, I believe Giuliani, when he was a federal prosecutor, he was big on that. So yeah, yeah, New York had a big history as far as organized crime, like, like Philly and other cities, I guess. But you know, what I kind of found was that in a lot of ways, the cops also had that same mentality of being like an organized crime ring. Right. Mm. You know, I don't necessarily feel that people were afraid of organized crime, like the, the, the mob a whole lot. At least I don't recall that, but I do remember people being very fearful of the police. Right. And based on some of the things that they did, I think people had good reason mm-hmm. to, to, um, to, fear to, to be fearful. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. The reason why I ask is because it's more like a mentality of, I think when you think about New York during that time, I think you think about like the gangs, like the black Latino gangs. You don't think about it being, you know, the mafia behind a lot of this stuff. They're kind of removed as far as the crime element. And New York is painted as like a bunch of wild kids running around, not saying it didn't happen, but you have that in your mind. Like they perpetuated all of this crime in the city when it was layered. And it's like the mafia probably ran the city. The cops were in the pockets. You know, they probably paid the cops off. And the people who were at the bottom were the same people who are at the bottom now, black and the brown. Well, yeah, no question. And, you know, when you think about it, the prisons are still filled with black men, Latino men mm-hmm. who, you know, may have been kids back then and were arrested for drugs, contraband, weapons that they may or may not have had or might have been planted on them. And if they were involved in drugs, they were low level offenders. Then meanwhile, you know, nobody is dealing with who brought those drugs into the community. You know, there was a lot of talk back then about the role that the CIA played in the drug trade and, you know, all those things. And then meanwhile, it was this war on drugs that really you know, was the impetus for placing on a massive level folks from black, brown, mm-hmm. poor communities in prison for years and years. Yep. And, and that was also used to, to, to justify the, the heavy handed draconian law enforcement tactics. Mm. So, you know, yeah, we have to bash these heads in because we have to protect, you know, society from this criminal element. Because, right, drugs were not looked at and still not looked at as a health issue, as they should be. Instead, there's criminalizing that behavior and three strikes you're out rule. And I mean, I guess I keep thinking about that powerful personal story, you know, you told and how it relates to you know, policing in New York in the late 90s and then a lot of the policing that we see now in 2020, it just in terms of looking for some kind of a transformation and you identified in, in your article on policing so well, the transformation that needs to happen is for law enforcement to view its mission as protecting human lives over property as opposed to the other way around. Yeah, no question. I mean, it's it's going to have to be a seismic shift. And I think that you're seeing some of that where, and just as an example, Minneapolis, which was ground zero this year for uh, Black Lives Matter, they are planning to disband police department and replace it with something else with a mind towards racial justice and 
public safety and public health in a completely new direction. And other, you know, other police forces, other jurisdictions are thinking about that. And it's going to have to happen, I think, because, you know, and this is this was the case back in back during the civil rights movement. It's the case now where black communities feel like the police are an occupying force. Police feel as if they are on a military operation. And that's why you see so much brutality, because they see themselves as uh, operating under enemy lines. They don't see the people as being human. They see them as animals or at best as targets. Yes, as targets, potential terrorists. And um, in some cases... In many cases, the police officers don't actually live in the communities that they serve. And in some cases, they are not viewed as actually serving and protecting those communities, but containing and monitoring and terrorizing. So, yeah, it's the template is going to have to change. And, you know, whether you want to call it defunding the police or whatever you want to call it, there's going to have to be a new model. The Black Panthers, they had talked about community control of policing. The Movement for Black Lives is talking about community control of policing, making sure that the community has control in terms of policies, hiring and firing and things of that nature. And that's what we need. That's Mm -hmm. what we need. My views on policing now are like changing, like as we speak in my mind, I'm like, okay, crime still goes on. And we're so used to having police, I guess, at our disposal to some degree, you know, because when something goes wrong, we call the police. Right. But when you add the historical context to it, it changes it, especially if you're a black person. It really changes it because it hasn't you know, if it started with black people being overseen by police and 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 that's how it started during slavery. Now, if it hasn't changed in name, how do we have any kind of like existence that makes sense? We really have to do away with it. To me, if historically that's what it was, now it's on us like, okay, we're existing underneath this rule or this governing of police. How do we move past that? And it's a difficult thing. When you put it out there, it's hard for me to really grasp Like, how do we exist with this notion that police historically have been harming black people since, you know, since slavery? How do we move past that without uprooting the whole system? I don't get it. Like, I don't see how we can. Yeah. You know what I mean? I'm I'm processing it as we speak. It's just hard for me to like I'm looking at police completely different now. One of the things I love that you said, David, about the police and, and you said whether we call it defunding the police or we call it something else. I mean, what the idea can be is some kind of a transformation where there's a different ethos, a different methodology, a different way of going about business. It's not just business as usual anymore because that's not working right. and it hasn't been working for a long time. And, and now we're trying to have a real reckoning with it. And you can call it by whatever name you choose. But the thing that's sought after is a transformation. You know, I don't know if you could speak to that, David. I think that a lot of people are going to look at this and try to devise some solutions to this. I think there are a lot of different ways to slice it. Mm -hmm. For one, I believe people are coming to the realization that there are some things that police should not do. When you look at all of the people who 
have uh, mental health challenges mm-hmm. who die in police custody. You know, the police shouldn't have been called in those cases. There are circumstances where social welfare, mental health counselors, social workers, other types of professionals would be better suited mm-hmm. in some instances as opposed to the police. You know, there are all these situations where people are dying, being shot to death by cops, mm-hmm. and there wasn't even any reason. It, it seems that police officers, you know, perhaps some of them are poorly trained. Perhaps some of them are trained the way they were. it was intended. Right, <laughs> underneath the system. Uh, right. Yes, yeah. yes. There's this mentality. And then add to it all of this military weaponry that they are now procuring from the Pentagon. And I believe that people mm. this year who maybe were never really aware of this, but were seeing it up close with all the protests where you see massive numbers of white folks who mm-hmm. are involved in these protests mm-hmm. and they're losing eyes right? because mm-hmm. they're being shot in the face with these rubber bullets. Oh, rubber bullets, yeah. And beaten by police, maced in the face, tear gas. For those who have experienced tear gas, you know it's mm-hmm. it's no joke. And I think that this is what people in war zones <laughs> have experienced, but it's also right. what communities of color have experienced for years. Mm-hmm. And now I think finally people are witnessing this who hadn't in the past on a larger scale. And now they're understanding, oh, so now we get this now we understand what's been going down Mm -hmm. for all these years and yeah you know zach it's like you said the ethos that Mm -hmm. has to change you have police officers who um should not be police officers there needs to be psychological profiling Mm -hmm. and whatever else um but there's also this mentality and there were people who thought well you know if we just change the training, have more racial sensitivity and, you know, implicit bias training, mm-hmm. we have better diversity, more, you know, officers of color. And I question how much all of that will really change things. Right, I, mean, it's, right. I think it's, yeah. you know, tweaking, yeah. at, tweaking at the edges, right. basically. Yeah, I mean, I, I liked what you said on, earlier in the conversation, too, when you said that, you know, you're feeling a sense of, I don't know if you used the word optimism, but I think that was a sense of hope, maybe. And, you know, you wrote in the Washington Post recently about how you said white allies have long had unique opportunity to help advance black-led movements for social justice. In that article, you also bring up that the white abolitionist John Henry led an insurrection against slavery in 1859, and how during the 1960s, white activists were beaten and lynched alongside black activists. I don't I don't know if you can speak to, you know, what's happening, what's been happening in Portland, um, and how you see it through that lens. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I think that what has made this year different mm. from, you know, the civil rights movement and other social justice movements is the extent of white participation. There was always white participation, you know, like in the civil rights movement. I think that right now, the fact that millions upon millions of people have participated in protests this year. Mm-hmm. I think there's something to be said there. And looking at Portland, I should say that there have been some problematic 
aspects to mm. what happened in Portland because um, the group of mothers, um, mm -hmm. the leadership was called out by black activists in Portland because there was some attempt to create a nonprofit organization, a 501c3 behind their backs. And it, it seemed that there was some white leadership in the organization that didn't want black leadership involved mm. and it seemed like there might have been some ulterior motives. I think that is a that's a cautionary tale as far yeah. as um, when white allies uh, mm. are involved in mm. racial justice movements. I think it, it is important to follow the lead Absolutely. of black folks to make sure that you are actually helping mm. and not hindering. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Totally but with that agree. said, I think it is a potent tool when white allies or co-conspirators are involved in a movement to help liberate black lives. Mm. And, you know, looking at the civil rights movement, you know, when you had white activists who were beaten mm -hmm. and sometimes killed, and there was this one case uh, I mentioned in, in my Washington mm -hmm. Post article, Viola Liuzzo, who was actually the only white woman to be lynched during the civil rights movement, mm -hmm. uh, sh shot to death by the Klan. And then, of then you also had you know other civil rights workers who were killed, and people hadn't seen that before. I mean, right. you know, black lives have always been expendable, mm -hmm. but to see young white people from the north right. lynched like dogs in the south, mm -hmm. and seeing those images on TV mm -hmm. that helped to 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 change public opinion. And was a factor leading to the enactment of Civil Rights Act, Voting Rights Act. And I, I believe that those images that we're seeing today that we mm -hmm. saw in Philadelphia of the police on the parkway tear gassing the nonviolent protesters, mm. the images that we saw in Portland and, and other places, I think that that has come a long way to swaying public opinion so that you have a majority of the public that is in favor of Black Lives Matter. Who would have thought anything like that would happen? I also happen to think that the times we're living in with the pandemic and the hard economic times have also played a role in people just, you know, looking at everything that's happening connecting the dots and saying, you know, something has to change. But yet, yeah, it's interesting times that we're living in. And for years, black people have been sounding the alarm. And sometimes society listens, many times not. And now people are finally starting to wake up. And I guess it's, you know, better late than never. I'm in awe by your humility. Honestly, I, I see you in passing a lot. We speak in passing. And as I was going through your vast amount of work, I'm kind of floored because you are not a person that's like, you know, you don't like show up like it's me. You're like a regular guy. There's so many people that aren't like that. And I really have a lot of respect for people who, especially with the work that you do, you have a way that to me, it lets me know that you are sound with your work. I'm just curious to know, like, in your formative years, like, how has your environment kind of, like, shaped your vision? You obviously have vision. What was the driving factor in you becoming a journalist? Mm, yeah, well, I'll tell you, man, if I had to point to one thing, and it, it was really what, what drove me to become a journalist 
and to go to law school. And it was um, right out of college with my, my first job. And it was in it was in corporate America. I saw some bad things there, experienced some things that eventually led to um, me leaving and also being a part of a class action lawsuit for like racial discrimination and, and harassment and getting involved in all that. The experiences that I had, I decided, well, you know, I'm, I'm going to have to do something with this. I can't just you know, let it sit there. I, I have to do something, take it further. So I decided that I had to get involved in social justice, racial justice, and journalism. And I always looked at journalism as um, a tool for social change. So I always, I've always written about the issues that are important to me, the legal system, criminal justice, human rights, civil rights, politics. And at the same time, I also decided to go to law school. And, you know, I, I was, I'd clerked in the federal judiciary for um, two federal judges. And I've worked in um, Harrisburg in the state legislature. I, I wasn't an elected official, but I was um, the director of the Pennsylvania Legislative Black Caucus. And I've done other work as far as prisoners' rights and, and civil rights and voting rights. And yeah, that that that's basically how it all started. And I always looked at, you know, you know, since those experiences, those bad experiences that I had, I, I decided that I, I had to do something to help other people. And you know, working with victims of police brutality, mothers and fathers who had lost their children, you know, children who were who were killed by police. That really put it all in perspective for me. And I decided, you know, I had to make this a lifetime thing, make it sort of make it my, my life's work. So that that that's how I got on that on that path. That's amazing. It's powerful. Which leads me to my curiosity about being the executive director of the Witness to Innocence, mm -hmm. which is a national organization of exonerated former death row prisoners and offenders yeah. in the U.S. Could, could you expound on that a little bit? Yeah. So death penalty has been a big part of the criminal justice, racial justice work that I've done. Yeah. So I, I was at Witness to Innocence for a number of years. And this is an organization of exonerated death row survivors, people who were in prison sometimes for decades, and then evidence was discovered that cleared them. And the U.S. is, you know, it still has capital punishment, still has a death penalty. A lot of countries, you know, Europe, they don't allow it. Other countries don't allow it. But the U.S. still has it, and I think it reflects the problematic history that we have had of lynchings and racial violence and a racially coded criminal justice system. I believe that the lynchings that we saw actually 100 years ago and less, those were just brought into the justice system and made more respectable, cleaned up. And then they called it the death penalty. And when you look at the fact that disproportionately it is used as a weapon against the poor and people of color, typically people who cannot afford justice, 
and it's rife with misconduct on the part of police and prosecutors, so many abuses in the system. And I think that it's uh, gradually it's been falling out of favor, the use of the death penalty. But at the same time, now the federal government is back to resuming executions on the federal level after a number of years of not putting anyone to death. It's a barbaric practice. Eventually, it's going to end. I do believe that it reflects this unaddressed legacy in our country. It it reflects how we treat people, the lack of humanity that we have in terms of the way we treat people. And I got to work with death row survivors, people who were traumatized for years and, you know, separated for their families for years, didn't get to see their children grow up. You know, their you know, family members died and they weren't able to go to the funeral because they were on death row. In some cases, um, people who were minutes or hours away from the execution, they were fitted for their suits they were going to wear for their funeral. And then at the last minute, the execution didn't take place. So, you know, one can't even imagine what these folks were experiencing. And this is what passes for the justice system in in America. And that kind of brings it full circle for my understanding about how do we deal with making our current situation with police? How do we make it better? It starts with us having the understanding that we are the prime target. So if black people are the target or if black and brown people have been the target, what do we do or what changes can actually happen if we don't change what the target or what the scope is or how police are actually policing? What does it matter? Like if we're the target, that's my conundrum. If we're in the scope of the police, how does anything that we change outside of us not being the scope of the, of the police, how does it make a difference? What, what does it matter? What do we do? I believe on the local level, the local and state levels, we have to demand change. You know, we we have to demand a change in the template, the format of what it means to be police. And then on the federal level, I think that we should also demand reform in terms of if local police agencies don't adhere to certain guidelines, then they lose their funding. Ultimately, we're going to have to change. I think we're just going to have to change the whole mission. You know, maybe it shouldn't even be called police. I don't know. Um, As I mentioned before, a lot of changes that are being considered these days and the, the whole mission has to change. The types of people who are being recruited that has to change. And, you know, I think as long as what passes now as law enforcement is nothing but an extension of the slave patrols, then, you know, we'll come back 10 years from now and we'll be having the same discussion. Exactly. And, and we have to realize, you know, when, when you go to the main line, when you go to white communities, affluent communities, you don't have these problems, right. do you? Because they work for them. They they exactly. work they work for them. Exactly, exactly. So why can't it be the same thing in black and brown communities? And notice, however, that you know it's not as if there is no crime being committed in white communities right. because we see the crimes being committed 
right now, you know, just name it, the white collar crime that's being committed, mm -hmm. the, the crimes that are being committed in terms of the corruption in the White House, all of those, you know, all of the billions of dollars that are being stolen from us. And, and the punishments are either non-existent or they're doled out extremely softly. Yeah. Yes. Yes. And it all comes down to the reason why is they aren't the target. We are right. Exactly. We're the target. Like there's no focus on them. The focus is to make sure that their investments are protected. Like they work for them. Like you said, on the slave patrol, we were property, right? They were protecting their investment. They had to make sure like we were, you know, we were treated like sheep. So, you know what I mean? Like that's what it was. So, yes. and we, and, and I don't like, it hasn't changed. That's why what's going on now with voting rights is so important, because ultimately it's the people in power who shape the policy. So that's why you see these people, Trump and his henchmen, doing whatever they can to sabotage the post office, to sabotage the mail-in ballots, to do whatever they can to suppress voting. Because ultimately, none of this will change unless people demand change. And it will come from people protesting in the streets, but it'll also come from people ha having the power of the ballot and putting folks in office who are going to enact the change. And these people, they see the change coming and they're doing whatever they can to stop it the same way that these Jim Crow segregationist governors and sheriffs back in the day thought that they could, you know, somehow block all of this, all of this, all the change that they saw coming, you know, but ultimately we have the power if, if we realize that we have the power and, and, and use it. David, this has been like an amazing experience for me. I'm, I'm still really like in all of your work, your knowledge on these subject matters. I just really appreciate you shedding light on areas that, that need it. Um, yeah. And I just want to thank you for having such a personal and power, powerful conversation with us. Well, hey, man, I really appreciate you guys. You have a great podcast and you are really dealing with some heavy subject matter and you're, you're doing it in a really thoughtful and professional manner. This is not easy. This is not lighthearted <laughs> subject matter. And kudos to you for doing this. And thank you for having me on because I always enjoy talking about this. And it's important that gentlemen like yourselves are really getting into it. We appreciate that. Yeah, we appreciate you. Thank you so much for joining us. Tune in next Thursday at 9 a.m. for a conversation about toxic masculinity.
As a disclaimer, Zach and I don't pretend to speak for all white or all black people.